Welcome to the IAH podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Melissa Clay, communication specialist. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with faculty fellow Elizabeth Engelhart, distinguished professor of American studies. In their conversation, Professor Engelhart discusses her current book project on Southern boarding houses. She describes her writing process and shares a story about her godmother's influence during her childhood. To start out, would you like to talk a little bit about what you're working on during your fellowship this semester? I'm working on a project about boarding houses in the U.S. South. And so it's a project that goes all around the region. It's primarily focused on women, although a few men were also boarding house keepers. And it's a project that deeply has to do with the kinds of food that people were eating in the boarding houses. Scholars have looked at boarding houses before, but they've primarily focused on them as a northeastern urban phenomenon. What I find when I talk to people around the U.S. South is that everyone has some kind of boarding house story. And in fact, the boarding houses in the South are everywhere. They're in cities, but they're also in small towns. They're surrounding very rural logging camps, mines, places where railroads were being built. They're anywhere where a factory is built or a mill is taking place. They're in the resorts of the South. They're in the uh, neighborhoods that are supporting those other industries, whether it's banking, whether it's teachers, universities. Boarding houses really are all over. I, I worked hard this summer to figure out some kind of, you know, writing habits and patterns mm-hmm. and things like that. So it feels like I've been kind of gearing up for it. Um, what works best for you in terms of the writing process? With this project, it's been really interesting. I've just been letting myself start by telling the stories. And so there's something kind of joyous about that. That's fun writing. It's yeah. not, you know, wrestling with the deep theory of it. Right. I think particularly for reestablishing writing pattern, and I'm trying to write this book pretty quickly, that's been good. You know, it's been helpful to find the fun part of it to begin. You know, those other parts will be part, you know, they'll find their way in. Right. I have a beautiful office at home that looks out on the trees, so that's a pretty good place. Is there a particular story you really enjoyed working on or discovering? (laughs) You know, so far I'm finding all of them fascinating. Anything from Mary Surratt and Abraham Lincoln's assassination being planned in a boarding house, you know, revisiting Mm -hmm. Thomas Wolfe's Look Homeward Angel and thinking about his relationship with his mother and her boarding house. This past week, I was researching a sensational trial that took place in 1906 that has to do with a boarding house in Asheville, North Carolina, although the trial takes place in western Tennessee. And somehow it involves the wealthiest of vacationing Southerners. It involves chorus girls. It involves (laughs) late-night drunken carriage rides. Uh, It involves, they interview as a part of the trial. They talk to the African-American cook at the boarding house. And so she's named, which means that we can trace her in the historical record, which is unfortunately sometimes difficult to do. Uh, So, so far, my experience is that each of those little trails brings me closer to understanding the life in the boarding houses, which is part of what I want to do. Yeah. Is there anything that's really surprising that you're finding out about this boarding house culture? I think I've been surprised 
first of all, by just how they're everywhere. And they come in all sizes. They have residents of all classes, people of different ethnicities, of different races, participate in boarding houses, not necessarily all in the same boarding house, although there's a surprising number of stories of people reinventing themselves, passing, changing their gender, changing their race. There might, in fact, have been a little more overlap in boarding houses than we initially think about. How would you define a boarding house? <laughs> just, just <laughs> before we get too far into it. So indeed, that's been surprising to me as well. I My general research approach is to let things be messy for a while rather than walking into a project with a definite definition right. in mind. That's proven especially useful with boarding houses because the difference between a boarding house and a hotel, between a boarding house and a brothel, Mm -hmm. between a boarding house, restaurant, kitchen, and a cafe, and a diner, all of those things are incredibly messy and they're incredibly blurry. So every time especially in the U.S. South, you sit down to say, well, this is going to count as a boarding house and this is not. I think you're faced over and over again by complications. And to my mind, that's where the really interesting research questions are. That's how we live our lives. We live our lives in complications. And so for me, keeping it open and figuring out, well, how, what are people self-identifying their establishment as? If they don't want to say what it is, why don't they? How do we settle on what counts and what doesn't count and why? How does that change over time? So an example for that is there are two interviews that were part of the Federal Writers Project that we have in our collection, in the Southern Historical Collection. They both take place in 1939. And one is a woman in Raleigh, North Carolina. Her name is Della McCullers. She runs what she calls a boarding house, and she wants to make sure her interviewer calls it a boarding house, that is right near Shaw University. So it's right in the heart of African-American Raleigh mm-hmm. in that time period. It turns out previously she had run a, a hotel. And in particular, she ran the restaurant that was a part of the hotel also. Then the great stock market crash happened. And she ended up stepping away from the hotel at that time, and both because of that and probably because Raleigh changed some of their licensing laws, she now is running something she calls a boarding house, but it looks a whole lot like what she was running as a boarding house before. And in fact, it only has two cots in the corner. But she'll make your food to order. She'll, she will uh, encourage people to stay, come in for a meal, stay a while. There's a jukebox in the corner. Uh, there's all kinds of signals that you're going to hang out there. And so it functions as a restaurant, maybe as a cafe, certainly as a jazz club, music club. It's all kinds of things. There's a second interview from that same time period that's of a woman named Texie Gordon in Athens, Georgia. So Texie Gordon is a white woman. She has been running her boarding house for about as long as Della McCullers had been running hers. They charge the exact same amount for a plate of food, so they're very close, comparable interviews. Mm -hmm. Texie Gordon makes a significant amount of her money in takeout meals. So she caters to a lot of business people, to traveling salespeople, but also to college students and to, in particular, 
women who have come into Athens to take on some of those new white-collar jobs who need a place to eat lunch. And Taxi Gordon will allow you to either come to her boarding house and eat, or you can get your meal to go. So those are a couple of examples of what gets complicated in a boarding house. Uh, What's a book that changed your life? So I grew up in Western North Carolina. My godmother was named Imogene Aker. She was an amazing person. She came from one of the towns in Western North Carolina that when the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, came through uh, and built dams across Tennessee and North Carolina, Imogene came from one of the towns that was drowned by the dam. Plenty of warning ahead of time, but everybody had to move and relocate. So she had to relocate. She never finished high school. She ended up working in a general store. When her daughter went to, started high school, Imogene finished high school. When her daughter started college, Imogene started college. So they did those together. When I knew her, when she was my godmother, uh, one summer she decided she wanted to know how to build a house. She was in her 60s at that point. Some people might have volunteered for Habitat for Humanity, and others might have checked a book out of the library. She joined a housing crew, and she worked on the housing crew for the summer. Looking back, I realized that Imogene was very deliberate in the books that she gave me as gifts, and she always gave me books as gifts. So she is the person who gave me my first book written by an Appalachian author. It was one of the books by Wilma Dykeman. And along with the, she gave me my first Margaret Atwood book. She gave me, uh, when I was eight, nine, and 10, she gave me books that had girls as heroes going off on adventures. But in particular, that book about Appalachia made me think about the mountains, think about the communities my family had lived in, made me think about the communities Imogene no longer was able to live in because of those changes. And I will always associate the two of them in my mind. What are some of the best moments in the classroom for you? I love the moments in the classroom where we're really talking to each other and learning from each other. I love the lecture classes that I teach, and I think there can be a lot of conversation and dialogue in those lectures. But I especially love the small collaborative classes when we go on an adventure together to investigate a topic, to learn about a culture, a history, a context for a research question. And I love that moment when a student offers the experience and expertise that they have and walks away from the conversation having learned not just from me but from the other people in the classroom. Is there a particular class that you really enjoy teaching that that's like small and offers this, those <laughs> moments? Or? I've been really enjoying our senior seminar in Southern Studies. And one of the challenges we took on the last time I taught it was to read a book a week, which is a big challenge for all of us. It's a challenge yeah. for us in the graduate classroom. But as a group, we decided to take that as um, not only keeping track of, learning about, having a discussion about 
various different methods in Southern Studies. How do you go about doing these projects, designing a project, think about a project? But we also took it as a challenge to add a new skill. And so I have a former graduate student who is now the editor of the Virginia Quarterly Review. And so as part of her job, Allison has to go through all of the cold submissions that the journal gets, as well as their invited submissions. So she is sometimes reading hundreds of, if not thousands, of pages in a week. And so she Skyped into our classroom to talk about, well, how do you do that? It was a very concrete, real-world example of sometimes you have to get your arms around a huge amount of material very quickly. And she had very practical examples. We paired those with, for each of the books that we were reading, because it was very much a class in newest methods in Southern Studies, all the books had been published from 2012 until the present. And so for the most part, the authors were very available to us. So we actually emailed the authors and asked them, what are your suggestions for how to read quickly? How do you suggest you get your arms around a new field, a new amount of information, a big project? And so over the course of the semester, we just practiced, and we figured out strategies and tips and ways. And I think all of us got better at that particular skill. And it's one that, you know, regardless of where you land, sometimes you need to practice that. You need to understand a whole field as quickly as possible. We have our uh, fellowship applications due soon, so we might need those (laughs) strategies. (laughs) I'll pass them on. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_unc. underscore UNC.